and welcome to Cult Movie Cult, where we watch and discuss the horrific, the obscure, and the flat-out strange from the other side of cinema. I am Mark Dickerson. And I am Jeremy Fink. And this is part three of our series, Lo-Fi Sci-Fi. Today we're going to discuss 1974's Dark Star. A million suns shine down, but I see only one. I think I'm over you I find I've just begun The years move faster than the days There's no warmth in the light And how I miss those desert skies Your cool touch in the night Benson, Arizona Blue warm wind through your hair My body flies the galaxies My heart longs to be there Benson, Arizona The same stars in the sky But they seem so much kinder When we watch them, you and I So here we are. Dark Star is a 1974 American science fiction comedy film directed by John Carpenter and co-written by Dan O'Bannon. This is, uh, Carpenter is actually his first directorial feature effort. Um, it follows a crew of four as they're on the deteriorating starship Dark Star, 20 years into their mission to destroy unstable planets that might threaten the future colonization of other planets. Uh, so, you know, pretty good wacky sci-fi concept right off the bat. Um, as we've seen in some other, uh, some other films we've discussed, nice and contained. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and the thing that, that struck me right away, just to kind of dig right in, was that, as we noted, this is a comedy film. Yes. Uh, so, so that was something that I, I kind of found interesting because right from the, the get-go, there's this country western song that plays, which you've just heard, um, which was really surprising for me because most space and most science fiction movies uh, mm-hmm. go with this kind of futuristic soundtrack. And so right away, it just throws you into this, this country western weird space where you kind of get that this crew you're following is going to be a little bit different than what we're used to seeing in sci-fi. Yeah, that juxtaposition with the opening credits in that song is great. Um, it really gets you into the into what what the movie's going to be like, I guess, uh, because it is more of a comedy, more of a satirical take on a sci-fi space movie, I guess. Uh, although, before we get into it too much, Jeremy, I wanted to mention that the budget for this film is 60000 So that we're going in descending order. Uh, this is the third movie we're talking about for this series. Um, but much much like the first movie we discussed, THX 1138, this was also a uh, this also began life as a student film mm-hmm. that was then expanded upon. Um, so just like George Lucas, um, John Carpenter and Dan O'Bannon collaborated on this in college, actually in the same exact school, the same exact college, which was USC. Um, and so I thought that was kind of interesting because that wasn't even something that we had planned, but. Now that we're looking at it, Getting um, running it's pretty, theme. pretty cool. Yeah, that it started mm-hmm. life that way, um, which is interesting because I saw they added um, when I was reading up on, you know, trivia and things like that. I saw that they had added a lot of scenes to make it longer um, from the student film, and a lot of the scenes of them of the crew of the space shuttle um, just in that enclosed area, you know, just having conversations. A lot of that was added in, mm-hmm. um, so the film prior to that was basically more of a you know the alien 
the alien scenes uh, and the more, I guess, action-oriented scenes. So I thought that was interesting that they uh, added scenes like that where it was mostly conversations. Yeah, which is a good way to fill space, though. Yeah. To turn and it, it into a feature. It, it expands on the backstory somewhat and, like, the lore of the story behind this, of what they're trying to, to convey. Um, so you, you said, uh, you mentioned this is a comedy. Um, as a comedy, how did, how did this movie work for you, Jeremy? Um, well, I didn't necessarily think it was funny all the time. Like, there, there were definitely some jokes that didn't land for me, but I kind of appreciated the fact that it wasn't afraid to make human beings seem human. Um, I, I, once again, we're used to seeing, this, particularly with space movies, uh, really efficient storytelling that's very to the point, very mission-driven, a lot of technical jargon. And what was kind of fun about this one for me is it showed the actual boredom that four yeah. people would be up against floating around in space for 20 years, doing something that, you know, by our standards would be really wild and exciting and intense, but by their standards seems kind of mundane and everyday. Um, right. so, so that was actually kind of nice for me. Um, just because it did seem to separate itself. It didn't feel like, you know, this movie has been kind of talked about before as a satire um, of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, but to me, it didn't really feel like a satire necessarily because it didn't feel like it was about the jokes. Um, yeah. it, it kind of felt like it was its own entity and the jokes were more just to express that, you know, these are just four guys that were kind of lost and bored out of their minds and sick of each other as they probably would be after 20 years. Yeah, they tell you it's been 20 years um, that they've been in that ship, so it makes sense. <laughs> Although I wonder how old they were when they got on there. I just realized that, because like, they're pretty young guys, obviously. Well, I think it said at one point, <laughs> one, one of the characters said, which also the science of this film, uh, it doesn't really dwell on the science too much, mm -hmm. uh, which once again, I didn't really have a problem with. Um, it kind of just lets you figure it out for yourself as you go along. Yeah, um, I'm remembering what you're about to say, that he... They said that you age much slower in uh, in space, I guess. Yeah, it was yeah. something like they'd been up there for 20 years, but they'd only aged three. Yeah, which um, is a good, that's yeah. a creative way around that problem and probably makes sense, right? I mean, yeah, you know. well, and I think there are a lot of nice workarounds, you know, in this movie. Oh, uh, totally. Probably that's... because of budget, they probably just couldn't afford to hire more established older actors, yeah, I would imagine, yeah. or because it was a student film where they had already cast these guys, not realizing that it would turn into something more involved and yeah so so you know it's a good little workaround you write you write the science in and that's i think part of the beauty of why sci-fi works in the low budget range is because you know you're kind of creating your own rules mm -hmm. and, and i think john carpenter did a really beautiful job of that here yeah so at first glance this film would not you wouldn't think of as being lower budget than the other films we talked about just mm -hmm. because it does take place in space and there are, you know, there's an alien and things like that. Uh, whereas Liquid Sky, we talked about how the alien was more just spoken about. You know, mm -hmm. you didn't actually see it. Um, in this movie, there was, like you said, the workarounds is really what's interesting about it for their budget. Um, because it's so bare bones, but yet at the same time, there is all the requisite sci-fi, you know, the, the buttons on the spaceship glowing and, you know, flashing lights mm -hmm. and the fact that they are in space, you do see them traveling through space. So all of that is in there, but the, the ways that they, you know, the ingenuity they had to, um, for the work around there is, is really interesting. And I think that's probably the most interesting aspect of it because as a comedy, I, I don't think it worked as, 
as well as maybe it wanted to. Um, mm -hmm. Although I, I feel like some of that's projection. I feel like when people look at this movie now, they call it a comedy. But yeah. to me, it almost seems like they were a little more serious about it than people would think. For the um, most part. There were definitely part. some parts that I think yeah, the, they the, would have had no delusions about. There's certain you know. elements that are very, uh, you know, that obviously are going for comedy there. But uh, for the most part, I feel like it's more introspective. And, and a lot of that might have to do with the fact that I just saw a screening of 2001 Space Odyssey at my local IMAX theater. And, um, you know, so I'm, I have that on the mind and I just watched this movie and they definitely, I hate to say the word companion piece, but they definitely, um, I would say Dark Star was influenced by certain elements of 2001. I mean, how could you not be? That was such a you know, groundbreaking movie. Um, so there are certain elements of that, like the isolation of the crew. And there's an allusion to like the HAL computer towards the end mm -hmm. where they're speaking to the computer. So there is certain elements that I think they were inspired by for the for this movie. Yeah. You know, but what's interesting, though, is I would say that this movie, more so than 2001, influenced another space movie, which came out a couple years later, um, which was Star Wars. Um, and I, I, the reason I say that this had a bigger influence, A, I, there's, you know, the pretty there, there are some shots that are pretty directly seem to be derivative of this movie in Star Wars, including the opening, um, right. like like the way the the, the the space shots are constructed, and it, and it may just be kind of a zeitgeist thing where you know these directors, John Carpenter and George Lucas, were looking at the same people and the technologies that were available to them, albeit very different budget ranges, were kind of similar. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I kind of feel like George Lucas probably saw and liked something about this movie, um, especially. I mean, there's like the hyperdrive sequence in mm -hmm. this movie which you know is right there in star wars as well so yeah. there's a lot of things that even though this had a much kind of goofier tone uh seemed to carry over and also another reason for that i think is that um in some interviews i've heard with john carpenter he always talks about how he always really wanted to be a western director mm -hmm. uh he wanted to do western movies like he loved john wayne and yeah. you know he wanted to do that kind of thing and i believe when george lucas pitched star wars it was called a space western um, so that, that might also just be another aesthetic thing that these guys were probably, you know, looking at some of those great studio westerns of the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. And but but, you know, the technology and what was exciting in film at that point was right. space. So they said, how can we combine this? So that in, in my mind is probably also mm -hmm. another reason why maybe they end yeah. up working nicely next to each other. And they went to the same school. So I'm yeah. sure he was I'm sure he was aware of this film in some way. Mm -hmm. um, so. Yeah, just to talk a little bit more about the movie, and then I want to move on to talking about the filmmakers, because I think that's actually probably a little bit more interesting, the fact this was their first movie and where they went from there. But the movie itself, um, the effects I wanted to focus on because I was actually pretty impressed by some of this, and I don't know how factual it is. Uh, it was taken from just like trivia, so you know, I'll just put it out there, but uh, apparently the double rows of the large buttons uh, on the bridge consoles are ice cube trays. Oh, interesting. And they were, yeah, and they were lit from underneath. So um, I found that interesting. And then the space helmets themselves that the crew was wearing, they're actually toys that were meant to fit children. So They did look watch, a little small. <laughs> yeah, they look a little small, and I guess that's why. Um, but it works, I believe. that. You know. Yeah, so the, again, these are creative solutions. You know, it's just, I, I feel like, well, necessity is the mother of invention. So I feel like, you know, if, if you're going to make a sci-fi 
space movie, uh, you're going to need to be pretty creative with the effects. And they definitely were. Mark, were um, you able to find anything on the, the elevator shaft sequence? There's a beautiful sequence. Yes. Um, actually, probably the most impressive of the whole film. Uh, yeah, it's the kind one that of, stands out the most. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a centerpiece of the whole thing where a guy is kind of stuck hanging from the bottom of an elevator in an elevator shaft. And mm-hmm. even in, you know, 1970, I guess at this point it would be like 72, 73 dollars. I still don't know how they made this one sequence on this budget because I could easily see that sequence costing $60,000 to make. So mm-hmm. were you able to find anything on how they did that? Because I was I not. Did- I did find some information. Um, again, I don't know how factual it is, but apparently a lot of those shots in the elevator shaft were actually just used with a uh, camera dolly. The dolly was the apparatus that was actually moving the actor. Like that was moving, you know, that, that Interesting. what was supposed to be the elevator. Um, and they shot it, I believe, horizontally for a lot of the shots. Mm-hmm. So, it, so it looks like it's coming down, but actually it's just they were just moving it, you know, from side to side. Yeah. something like that so that was I didn't find much more than that but it, I, mm-hmm. I'm sure they had to get really creative with the camera angles and the yeah. sets they used for that yeah I, I was I was particularly impressed with that sequence actually mm-hmm. uh, as, as someone who does a lot of low budget filmmaking because that's what I figured they did but I, and I was looking for signs of that um, but there were a few shots where yeah. he clearly looked like he was dangling and the yeah. physics of it unless he has like world class mm-hmm. uh, forearm strength and could just prop himself up in a plank without touching anything. I, I don't have any clue how they did this other than just having him dangling like yeah. 60 feet up in an elevator shaft. So there, there's some either really good trickery or some really dangerous labor violations going on uh, to pull those shots <laughs> probably, off. Because they're, they're pretty stunning. They're pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably a little bit of both. Yeah. But, um, yeah, because I, I, when I read that, I was like, okay, I can see that for this shot or this shot. But for the entire the sequence as a whole, I, I agree, Jeremy. I think... It's pretty impressive. It's kind of it's pretty thrilling to watch, and mm-hmm. I feel like they couldn't have used that trick for every single shot. So um, I don't know exactly how the entire sequence was shot, but they, they, you know, like I said, they had to get creative with their camera angles, and I'm sure they, you know, a lot of the shots were pretty tight. So I'm sure they were able able to work their some kind of magic with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, very impressive. I mean, what they were able to do on that budget, I think, is is our main, you know, what we're going to be talking about because. Um, at first glance, you know, that certainly doesn't look like ice cube trays to me, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, when you know about the helmets, you're like, oh, okay, I can see them being a little small, but you don't really think of it when you're watching it. You just totally give yourself over to the premise. And then the fact that all these actors are unknowns, well, Dan O'Bannon went on to be known in a different way as a writer, but um, the fact that they're all unknowns and likely students kind of adds to that mm-hmm. aura, you know, because you don't. You're not like, oh, that's this actor who yeah. this is his first role or whatever. So I think that kind of, of adds four. to it. Yeah, yeah it's just this, this gang of four men and Floating around. One, of, one of them is constantly trimming his uh, mustache yeah. hairs, which I thought was funny. Um, there are li- little funny moments with in it. I, I you know, I didn't didn't really find myself laughing that much, but um, it's definitely silly. It has silly moments in it for sure. And I, I don't think we can avoid it any longer. We have to talk about the beach ball alien mm-hmm. because that is... Um, the most ridiculous part of it, probably the most outright silly aspect of the film. Uh, when you see it, you're kind of in disbelief that they actually did that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's kind of inspired in a way because it is so simple. Yeah. This, and it it's almost like they didn't even try to not make make it look like a beach ball. Yeah. You know, so it's almost like they did know, like, okay, this is silly and we don't care. We're just going to put it in there and yeah. this is our alien, you know? It's, it's, it's kind of refreshing. Yeah, it, it is refreshing. 
Um, and especially be- because, well, we're going to get more into this, but Dan O'Bannon, you know, he went on to create probably the most popular and the most well thought of alien movie, which was alien. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that he started with the beach ball alien, I, f- I find pretty amusing. Yeah. yeah. But I, th- I think especially in low budget like that, I feel like you do see a lot of the time uh, filmmakers try and often fail to uh, create something in like th- that looks living like a monster or anything like that or an alien. And the reason for that is because it's believable enough that it's moving and everything, but you can still like something feels off, something feels manufactured. So I think the fact that they unashamedly like they didn't even try to hide the fact that it was just. A yeah. beach ball they kind of say like this is what you're working with as an audience member mm-hmm. you're either going to accept it and love it or you're going to hate it and too bad you're lost you know well, it's it something very bold and empowering for uh, for low budget filmmakers about that kind of attitude right. well you have to use your imagination which in this day and age you know it's, uh, with all the cgi oversaturation out there i i did i also found it refreshing i, I personally thought it wasn't the worst thing that you do have to use your imagination a little bit and like your suspension of disbelief um, because, you know, I just feel like nowadays is, you know, if this was made now, you know, it would be a CGI alien in every shot. And, you know, so the fact that this is the only alien they have, this is what they have to work with. And you do believe it. You do believe that thing is an alien. Yeah. Um, yeah because there's no reason they show it to you. They say this is our alien and right. go, you know, it's, it's very fun. Yeah, and like I said, that's that whole sequence in the the elevator shaft is, you know, and like you said as well, like it's pretty uh, engaging, and mm-hmm. uh, so they were able to do a lot with with the, the small amount of money they had. Um, were you able to find any information about who helped them produce this? Because I, I doubt they produced it on their own. I'm sure, like Lucas, they probably had someone come in and and help out financially wise. Um, at least. Let me see if I can find anything. Yeah. Uh, Sorry to put you on the spot there. I just was thinking of that in my head. No, you know, I don't think I caught that. Mm. It was probably Francis Ford Coppola. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, No, I don't know. I'm not seeing any information on here. If we dig deeper, maybe we can put a link Mm -hmm. down in the description or just kind of do some kind of write-up about it if we find any more information on that. Or if anyone knows, feel free to chime in and let us know. Um, Until then, we'll just assume it was... Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, we'll just assume it was Francis Ford Coppola because <laughs> somehow he had his hand in every single project that came out of probably the whole state in of California 70s. in the yeah. 70s. Or yeah, not even just, just any project in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Francis Ford Coppola probably had something to do with. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, maybe. Um, but yeah, really, really resourceful, really, really, uh, like, like really, like really economical, good filmmaking mm-hmm. and kind of fun and believable. One thing, that, one thing that I was thinking about was the influence of cartoons on this movie. And oh. the reason I say that, and, and it, it didn't, it wasn't the, the best executed part of the film, I think. Um, but some of the space sequences, uh, you, he, he used still photography and then would put some kind of moving effect over it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is something you see a lot in cartoons, actually. I've actually, to you know, show my inner nerd a little bit, recently with my girlfriend have been watching, rewatching the original Pokemon television series. Mm-hmm. And something that they do a lot is that if there's a big dramatic moment uh, to kind of slow it down and make things more intense, they'll actually just use a still image with maybe mm-hmm. like a moving background. Like they'll make like the characters mm-hmm. won't be in. And in reality, it's probably to save costs because they don't have yeah. to animate it as much. It's dynamic, um, though. I mean, but it, it, it but works. it's dynamic, yeah, and it gives a certain feeling. I think uh, the way it's used in this film, I don't think it's the best way to achieve verisimilitude, uh, which is what they were going for in this film with it. I think, but there were certain moments where it was kind of just you know like 
like when when it was when it was an emotional decision rather than a practical decision, mm-hmm. I, I think it did work here, and and it's pretty interesting and pretty striking because it does give this otherworldly, you know, like like we don't totally understand how this works feeling, um, and also culturally at the time, you know, this is if we're talking nineteen seventy four, but they started making this in seventy one seventy two. We're only a couple of years removed from the moon landing, so for the first time, people are actually seeing space, and the curiosity is really peaked mm-hmm. I would imagine so so kind of getting into this uh theoretical discussion of space both visually and in the mm-hmm. way the characters are talking to each other and the robots uh, yeah uh, they do the, they do mix the silliness with the introspection and mm-hmm. um like I said you know the isolation and the vulnerability of being in space I mean that that also harkens back to 2001 mm-hmm. and it was something that Dan O'Bannon would later explore more in Alien um, obviously, this is a more like slight and comical take on those themes, but um, but I, now that we're talking about it, let's let's discuss the the filmmakers a little bit because, like I said, I think that's a very interesting aspect of this. Um, John Carpenter, who, uh, well, let me get the, all the roles here because both of these men took on a couple different roles. Uh, so John Carpenter was a writer, a producer, and director, and he also did the music, which he would which he would go on to do for many of his later films, mm-hmm. in, including uh, probably most famously Halloween. Um, and then Dan O'Bannon, uh, he was a writer as well. Uh, he also was the editor and he acts in the movie. He's one of the main, or one of the only, uh, of the only cast members, yeah. you know, one of the only characters in the film on the crew. Um, so he, uh, this was the first film for both of them, besides I'm sure you know some other shorts they probably made in school. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, what do you think that, uh, these two men learned from this film that they carried on to the other, their other work? Um, well for me, so I'm to, to be totally upfront, way more into John Carpenter than Dan mm-hmm. O'Bannon. Um, so for me, just looking forward, I think stylistically, there are a lot of things that you would see in later John Carpenter films that you could point right at this movie and say, oh, that's where that's coming from. He was starting to explore that. Um, obviously, the big John Carpenter film that gets talked about the most is Halloween, um, which I think um, I I I, re- I didn't rewatch Halloween this year, um, but last year I went and saw a midnight screening of Halloween, and the the thing that I think gets forgotten is how funny that movie is, um, despite its more twisted themes. And I think that at that point, John Carpenter had developed as a filmmaker enough to kind of balance those things in a way that maybe tonally didn't always work in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my actual my favorite John Carpenter movie though is actually They Live, um, mm-hmm. and I think the thing that the thing that this movie had that They Live also had was despite absurd circumstances, uh, it still was making a point. Yeah. It, it still it still was deeply thought provoking, and but it ne- and could balance its uh, it, it could balance its silliness with its seriousness. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I, I, I had this uh, little chat with a, another filmmaker who I'll give a little shout out to right now. Actually, he's part of a team called Rivera Senate. His name is Matthew Rivera, and uh, him and his partner make these really interesting 16 millimeter film noir short films. So check them out if you get the chance. Um, but he, we were talking about a week ago, and he said, "Great filmmakers." Uh, they, they can't just give you vegetables. They have to give you, they have to feed you vegetables and make it look like candy. You know, they, 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 have, they have to hide the healthy yeah. thing inside the mm-hmm. exciting thing. And I think that's something John Carpenter in this film was starting to get at. And as he got into, you know, his later work, 
uh, he really, really learned how to do. So for me, this was just the, just the beginning of what would become uh, one of the most prolific examples of a filmmaker who's able to do exactly that, give you vegetables but make it look like candy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and all, all of Carpenter's films do have that sense of fun about them. Um, mm-hmm. Some more than others, but obviously you can see the beginnings of that here. And the way it's shot as well, I, I thought, you know, with what they had, again, uh, I thought he did a pretty good job with it. Um, the ships are mostly those tight, compact spaces, but there's a lot of detail. There's a lot going on if you look around the frame. Um, besides the blinking buttons and screens and all that, you know, just the depth of some of the shots inside the ship, it really gives you an illusion of something grander, which is kind of... I mean, and it's at its core what we're kind of getting at with when we talk about these low-budget sci-fi movies, because mm-hmm. because they don't have much, but they're trying to tell a grand story, uh, an elaborate story, and um, so the filmmaking and the, and the shots that that they choose, I mean, that's that's that helps. So yeah. um, I, I I noticed that a lot in this movie um, because the scenery doesn't change up that much, but with what they had, they they made it work, and um, and it felt huge. The space felt it, massive, right? That's what I was getting at. Yeah, it feels it feels expansive. It feels like there's a lot going on um, in in this, the background and in the scenery and things like that. Like it, it's believable. It's believable as that these people are on this ship for 20 years. Yeah. I think it is. Um, and then so Dan O'Bannon to go back to him um, because I love Carpenter as well. But for some reason, I think of this as O'Bannon's movie more than I mean I'm sure it's it was equal parts. But mm-hmm. when I think of this movie, I just think of Dan O'Bannon because he does go on to make to write alien um and you know and that's still in the same almost the same exact uh territory as this yeah thematically at least so alien is is dan o'bannon further exploring uh what he began to explore in this in a more comical and, and silly way um, and like i said this is a more comical version of of that type of story but also like in in alien uh, in this film though it's more for budgetary reasons here <laughs> um, it's what you don't see um, and that's also another staple of these kinds of movies it's uh, you know using your imagination like we talked about uh, and this movie is definitely more about the men on aboard the ship and their conversations and, and their thoughts about their situation and a lot of alien is the same uh, same idea it's you know a lot of the scenes there's not much action going on at all there's not even any suspense it's just the crew all together in a room talking, planning something, mm. you know, or sometimes they're just bullshitting. And I think that's, um, even that's just, you know, you can see the beginnings of that here, but I, I can see those themes and, you know, Dan O'Bannon, he didn't have like the most illustrious career, but he is well-regarded mm. um, just mostly for alien, but also, you know, he directed return of the living dead. Yeah, he carved uh, out his place. Yeah. So he had his place and um, I just see the, the, the most clear um, correlation between, his work, but obviously Carpenter, you know, I love Carpenter and, and uh, to see his beginnings is, is definitely uh, entertaining and interesting. And if you are into his work at all, um, you should definitely watch this movie just to say you've seen them all. <laughs> yeah. So, so what's interesting with this film, I think, too, to take into consider to consideration is the influence that it went on to have um, years later and not necessarily just this film, but kind of the attitude towards this film. Um, so, so one of my favorite directors is Robert Rodriguez, um, who I'm sure, you know, this is the cult movie cult podcast. So it, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you're probably all very familiar with Robert Rodriguez. Um, but he has this book, Rebel Without a Crew, which in oh, my opinion is a, is a must read. Yeah, must read yeah. for any any filmmaker, d- whether your aspirations are to be, you know, an independent filmmaker or to direct studio movies, just because it's a mm-hmm. good peek into all, you know, all parts of that. Um, but... I think that 
the way he makes he made El Mariachi and his you know El Mariachi style of filmmaking probably wouldn't exist without John Carpenter. Um, and, and specifically the way this movie is made, I think this movie is probably the thing that gave John Carpenter to go to, to have the confidence to pretty much be involved in every step of the process in his own movies. Um, and if you look at it, like El Mariachi was pretty much the film uh, that kicked off the whole 90s independent cinema movement. You know, the, the American Indies and the Sundance generation and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and, and Robert Rodriguez, like a, a lot of people don't even know, he does his own music as well. Uh, he really looked up to John Carpenter. Uh, one of my favorite is the Planet Terror soundtrack. I, I'm not the hugest fan of that movie, but I listen to the soundtrack over and over and over again. I can see that. Um, and, and it's one of those things where, like, this style of filmmaking, you know, people people overseas were doing this at this point. Um, you know, you, you had all those French New Wave filmmakers who were making films uh, for nothing, but there weren't a lot of American filmmakers doing this kind of thing. And the fact that they were able to pull this off um, is a pretty monumental feat, uh, especially because they didn't necessarily have the kind of support that a George Lucas had or, or other filmmakers like that. Mm-hmm. I agree. That book is definitely a good one to read. Um, it is, you know, I think relevant still today to people that that make want to make independent films. And that the 90s was kind of like, uh, you know, it's one of my favorite periods for independent film. I feel like it was kind of like the Wild West in a way. And mm-hmm. a lot of exciting ideas were getting out there. People were making movies their own way, and there was a lot of fresh filmmakers out there. Um, and I think it's it's also kind of goes back to this time that we're talking about with you know THX and Dark Star uh, and this uh, University of Southern California and uh, the offspring from that. I think people were were taking these kind of out there ideas and 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 just making it. They were just going for it, you know, with with whatever budget they had, um, and it would lead to things like Alien and Star Wars and all these much larger budget movies, obviously, mm-hmm. but you know, you got to start somewhere and it's, it's really cool to see uh, where these filmmakers started out. Um, and I think it fits into our, our series pretty well here. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I think it works in really nicely. I think it's kind of a nice midway point too. Um, mm-hmm. As yeah. we're, cause, cause soon we're going to be getting into some like really, really uh, low budget stuff down there. Yeah. Uh, to going. the point where, you know, this is, this is, Homemade to an extent, but still had some support behind it. But we're going to get into some stuff that is literally like homemade. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's a good midway point, especially because these guys kind of did every step of the process. Yeah, um, you know, it, it felt like a real friends and family uh, kind of production. So so Mark, any any moments other maybe other than the beach ball alien because that <laughs> that's the one obviously I think yeah. ev- everyone kind of remembers from this. But any any moments that really just stood out to you that were you know, interesting, uh, exciting, challenging. Yeah, the the beach ball alien is, uh, <laughs> it's just the first thing you, you think of when you see this movie. It was the first clip I had seen. Uh, someone had sent it to me before I'd even seen this movie. And to me, that's like the ultimate in, in uh, low-budget solutions to creature effects. So mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that. But yeah, like, you, um, you know, you're, you're asking if there's other moments. I would say, like, towards the end, that whole ending, um, I, I, I thought it was pretty thought-provoking because it does... Uh, call back to the HAL computer, you know, the sentient computer from 2001. Mm-hmm. It kind of alludes back to that in a comical way. Um, they're kind of poking fun at it a little bit. 
or poking holes in it, I guess. But um, I think that's pretty uh, pretty entertaining to watch. And then the, the very ending is <laughs> when he's basically surfing in space. You, you really can't beat that. That's uh, it's pretty yeah. out there. So, <laughs> and uh, they do allude to him surfing earlier. So it kind of you know it does make sense in a weird sort of way, in a, a surreal kind of way. Um, but yeah, that's, I would say between the Beach Ball Alien and and that ending, um, um, you know, I, I think those are the two moments that, that uh, stood out to me the most. How about how about you? Uh, yeah, I think the the surfing ending, uh, which once again, I mean, we're already thirty minutes into this episode, so if you haven't figured out, we're gonna oh. have some spoilers in this one. Yes, um, we uh, we tend to spoil things. <laughs> probably should have probably should have said that in the first two or three minutes, but um, but yeah. So well, the, if you're listening to this far, I think you probably yeah, know. You've probably figured it. out that we're gonna spoil it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the surfing ending was a big one for me. Uh, like I said, just the music. I, like I love 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 the fact that it didn't have a traditional sci-fi soundtrack like yeah, the, they... the, these images of space which i guess is something that i guess kubrick kind of did as well um i think yeah with the the classical music i mm-hmm. think it probably would have felt more revolutionary at the time uh mm-hmm. than it does to us now just because so many people have copied kubrick um but yeah. i honestly can't maybe that's out there but i can't really think of other examples i've seen where there's country western music playing during lofty, beautiful space sequences. That's interesting. I wonder um, if that was on their minds when they yeah. were uh, thinking of what music put in there. Like, okay, Kubrick used classical. Uh, we're gonna yeah, use classical. We're gonna use this. Like, yeah. I wonder if that was part of the decision. Um, but but one one little sequence, and I, I'm not even really sure why this is just sticking with me. Um, but it's when they are just like like all of the the crew members are just kind of talking directly into a camera with a white background. And just kind of expressing their grievances and you know their little complaints and oh yeah I did like that part just yeah. just the minutia yeah. of it like yeah like I don't know like like for me like I love I love good character work mm-hmm. and like I, I don't think these are necessarily the best characters in the world I, I you know I think there was a lot that could have been improved upon mm-hmm. but just just those little tiny details like that that yeah they they were just fun it's it just it's just is a different kind of thing than yeah. most space movies you see yeah they're kind of putting on voices and and like having a little bit of fun uh almost talking mm-hmm. directly to the audience like talking to the camera yeah another thing that the film did well actually this just reminded me of it when you brought up this sequence is they do give you a good sense uh of the crew starting to lose their grip on reality mm-hmm. um which is something you know you don't see all the time in, in movies that take place in space but to me it makes total sense like if you're going to be up in a spaceship in the, in the vastness of space yeah. for 20 years like you're gonna lose it a little bit so i like that you know when he's like shooting the gun aboard the ship like that was another moment that i thought like was interesting and um so yeah they do mention it has been 20 years up there so yeah. it, it makes sense so you're floating around in space for that long like you're gonna start to like lose it a little bit and i think that sequence that you brought up uh, where they're speaking like directly to us like mm-hmm. almost it's uh that that brings that to mind as well and the kind um, of lack of procedure as well mm-hmm. I, I think there, there's this misconception um that people who are in really technical fields uh like you know it, like people astronauts or one thing i think about all the time is like surgeons you know mm-hmm. people who aren't surgeons or don't know any surgeons i think we have this kind of idea that surgery is this very clean thing like cutting a steak you know very delicate uh but it's like it's like a pretty violent thing it's pretty messy and all over the place and i would imagine that space travel is really similar um i recently just watched damien chazelle's new film first man and i think uh-huh. one thing that uh he he expressed beautifully was how uh particularly in 1969 when we were going to the moon it's kind of how lo-fi it was 
You know, like like in our minds, I think we think of all these computers we have now, but you, but you know, they, back then they didn't really have that same kind of computing power and everything. So so just how messy and human it all is, you know, that people are making mistakes, they're figuring things out as they go along. Like there's one thing early in this movie where these guys are asking for protection from radiation. And the guys, the the guy at the base on Earth is feeding back and saying, "Oh, sorry, it's out of our budget." You know, it's mm-hmm. like it's like those kind of little yeah. little human elements that yeah. I, I don't want to say this felt more real because mm-hmm. I don't know what space travel is like, but I would imagine it, it that it is more real than a lot of space movies because of how yeah uh, unassuming and uh, utterly stupid it was sometimes because. People can be utterly stupid, right? You know, especially yeah, there's, there's on, a, in high pressure situations where they don't know what they're doing, right? Yeah, there's a different element to it um, that they kind of bring attention to in this movie, and again, a lot of it, I'm sure, is for budgetary reasons. Like, okay, let's let's uh, pad the the length of the movie by having mm-hmm. a scene where they talk to each other, but because they added those scenes in, I think that really adds a lot to the movie overall. Like, it, it makes it unique. It makes it even more unique, I think, um, mm-hmm. because, like you said a lot of these kinds of movies, you don't really see that aspect of it. So I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's worth, uh, watching even just for those moments, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah I agree. Even, even the effects aside, I think just the almost like naturalistic, it's, it's funny because again, these were not, these are clearly not actors or at least yeah. not professional actors, but yeah, there's something about these, uh, performances just like they're almost very naturalistic and very, they feel um, like a real crew like like and it, probably they are a real crew not a real space crew but like yeah probably the crew of the film the crew of the film <laughs> yeah. but because of that it just it does feel like you know i could yeah. actually see these guys in pretty much any situation yeah it goes actually interacting this way it kind of goes back to liquid sky too just to, to tie it into one other movie that we talked about mm-hmm. uh, where we we talked about how the uh the cast was like you, you you've almost felt the familiarity with each other there you almost felt mm-hmm. the camaraderie and you can feel that like tenfold in this movie because like <laughs> it's just four of them and you know in this tight enclosed can't escape space, each other yeah they can't escape and and you just get that feeling when you watch it which you can't get from a, a you know a big budget movie you just can't yeah. um not the same way at least so yeah. um so yeah that that was dark star um and i think we covered a lot about it and talked about the filmmakers a little bit but um, as Jeremy, as you mentioned, we're, we're going to go, we're going down. We're going even even further down. Next, we're going to talk about um, another very famous uh, actor, sort of semi-filmmaker, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Peter Fonda, he made a movie called Idaho Transfer. And there's a lot of similarities between this movie and that one. Uh, this one that we're going to talk about, probably even, even lower budget, even more bare bones in a way. Um, so I can't wait to talk about that. And uh, Jeremy, is there anything else you want to add about this one? Uh, no, just a good watch. Uh, a lot of fun. Uh, you know, fans of either Dan O'Bannon or John Carpenter, I think, yeah. you know, definitely worth seeing. This one, as of now, as of uh, November 20, 2018, is available on Daily Motion for free. Yes. Um, so, you know, get out there and watch it. I don't know if we can it. even say that, but. Well, yeah, well, if we can't, then Whatever. we'll just bleep it out. Yeah, we'll bleep it out. Um, <laughs> Now a lot of these movies, it's it's actually amazing how easy yeah. you can, how easily you can find these things. But um, not that we advocate it, but you know, what do you check it do? out? Yeah, in, in certain situations, you got to do what you got to do. So um, yeah, check it out. It's easy to find. It's also just like a good uh, chill out movie, like just to put on like the background, mm-hmm. just kind of like space out, not to 
use that pun there, but <laughs> I really didn't mean to do that. But <laughs> yeah, just kind of a throw it on kind of movie, and uh, it's it's enjoyable. Yeah, so keep on surfing. And keep on surfing. <laughs> All right. So this is uh, this concludes the third part of our series, Lo-Fi Sci-Fi, where we talked about Dark Star. Next time we'll talk about Idaho Transfer. Thank you for listening to Cult Movie Cult. You can find us on iTunes and Podbean. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any cult films you'd like to hear us discuss on the show, please feel free to reach out to us at cultmoviecult at gmail.com. This has been Cult Movie Cult, and until next time, so long from the other side.